Well, good morning again, uh, church. We'll start, <clears throat> we continue our series through the book of Kings. I ask that you turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. This morning we'll be looking at just two verses, verses 19 through 21. You'll find this passage on page 301 in your pew Bible. You know, uh, before I even get to the text, I, I just want to say or communicate. I remember in 1984, I joined the Navy, <laughs> and I was shipped off to boot camp in October of 84. And while in boot camp, you know, the thing about boot camp is they try to make you someone different, new. They tell you, they actually told us, they said, listen, you are no longer a civilian. You are a naval, you are a military person. And so with that, the names of the things that you talked about, a wall became a bulkhead. A water fountain became a scuttlebutt. And on and on and on. And the thing was you were supposed to be completely sold out to the military way of thinking because you were not a civilian, no longer civilian. You were a military person called to be discipled in the ways of the military, to think that way, to act that way, to be that way. And oh, I took it to heart. I really, really took it to heart, did everything that they asked me to do, studied everything that they asked me to study, and even my movies. I remember the movie that was out a little while after that was Platoon. I don't know if you remember Platoon, but it was a movie about the the Vietnam War, and that was, to me, the greatest movie ever made. I remember telling my sisters on a short uh, leave to New York, we got to go see this movie again. I had already seen it twice. We got to go see I'm telling you, this is the greatest movie ever. And, you know, they had no military knowledge whatsoever. They went to see the movie, and after leaving, I was like, wasn't that great? And they looked at me like I had three heads because it was not the greatest movie to them. It was the frame of mind that I was in. And I guess what I, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because as we look at this particular passage, the thing that I want to communicate is I was sold out completely to the naval way of life and the naval way of thinking. It was all that I was about. It was who I was, it was who I was internally, externally. Everything about me was sold out to the Navy. Now, I'll tell you something else a little bit later about why I got out and how it humbled me. But for now, uh, as we recap where we were, Elijah, God's prophet, had stood up against the false prophets of Baal, and, and God had given them into his hand. And shortly after that, he went through a short bout of, of despair that was connected to feeling that he was the only one who had a heart that was devoted to God and a commitment to the covenant they had with him. God revealed to him that he was in fact not the only one, but that he had spared 7,000, that he was going to spare 7,000 from his judgment so they could do his work. Then Elijah was given specific instructions to anoint three men who would lead the charge of the coming judgment that he would, God would unleash on Israel. One of them would be his successor, Elisha. And that's what we have here in our passage the passing of the ministerial mantle from Elijah to Elisha. 
And so with those preliminary words in mind, let us now read this text that we have before us. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let's give careful attention to it. So he departed from there. There is Horeb, the Mount, Mount Sinai, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look at these words, even now, that you would open our minds to the things that you would have us to hear concerning you. That you would open our hearts concerning the things that you would have us to know concerning our Lord. That you would reveal our own hearts to us. Guide us in the way, in the path of righteousness. In having a zeal to follow you, to be devoted to you. To give up all the things that would hinder us from knowing you and growing in your grace. Would you bless us even now by the power of your spirit so that we would indeed develop hearts that love you with all our heart, mind, and strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I look at this particular passage this morning, I'm going to do so under three headings. First, the call, then the response, and the practice of discipleship. So first, the call. Here in this passage, we find that Elisha's call was divine in nature. It was God who called Elisha. It was not Elijah. Elijah was the one that laid his cloak on him, but it was God, if you remember it in the passage prior to this, that instructed him to call him. So it was God who was doing the calling. There's also a principle. It was God who was doing the calling, and so it is with us. God is the one that raised us as he did our Lord from the dead. He is the one that has called us. Every single one of us has been called by God. And as such, we have purposes that are set before us. There's also a principle I've been noticing here uh, for some time, and that is this. It is true that God equips those whom he calls. But he also, he, he always seems to call folks who are actively engaged here, for instance, Elijah was, Elisha was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. He was going about the business of working at his chosen craft. Now, in the same vein, listen to Jesus' call of some of his disciples in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, look at that word, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. 
And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Time and time again throughout scripture, when God calls folks, he calls folks who are already engaged in things. You know, that's important when we think in light of when we call elders, when we call deacons, when we call people, and you look around and you call a person who's sitting around not doing anything. What I've seen is that's not how God works. God calls those who are working, who are engaged, who are about the business of accomplishing things. And then they turn that same thing, that same mindset, into accomplishing things for him. So you see there are three instances here, one in our passage and two in the, in the text of Mark. And in all three, the men whom God called were actively engaged in their profession. Now, it might be a stretch, but this reminds me of the, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, the men who were given two and five, the men were given two and five talents. They busied themselves maximizing what they had been given. And when the person who received one talent, you might remember, went about acting in a manner that was not at all consistent with the master who gave him that talent. So the first two received more, while the person with one had even that one taken away from him. There's a principle that God wants his people to be active in the vineyard. And so here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you have been called by God. You might not be a vocational minister. You might not be working in ministry directly per se, but all of us are called. You have been called. Ephesians 4 communicates the fact that those who teach and preach do so to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God owns us. He owns you that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You do it by sharing the gospel. You do it by working at a degree of excellence in your spirit influence. Everything about you is sold out to your Lord and Savior, and you represent him. Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So like Elisha, we've been called into service by God. Each and every one of us has been called. You have not just been called and been saved. You're not just, you haven't just been saved, but you've been called into service for God's glory, every single one of you. So are you engaged for God's glory? Are you? How are you? How are we going to respond? Going back to verse 19, we find Elijah in obedience to God's instruction, casting his cloak on Elisha. This act was the cultural norm for passing off the proverbial prophetic baton, if you will. So how did Elisha respond to this call of God? 
Our next point, the response. Look at verse 20 and 21. It reads, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. There are three actions you see here in terms of Elisha's response. First, he runs to Elijah and he asks him to allow him uh, to go kiss his father and mother. Or in other words, bid them farewell. At first, Elijah responds with what every scholar or, or Bible student refers to a puzzling or enigmatic statement. He says, go back again, for what have I done to you? I agree with some commentators who say that this sentence is what Jesus had in mind in Luke 9, 61, when he responded to the man who said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The imagery of the plow and going back to your parents is, is what connects them, but, but are they really the same? And if not, why not? To answer that question, let me read what Roger Ellsworth wrote. He wrote, the answer has to lie within the hearts of the two men. Elijah knew Elisha's request came from a heart that was eager to follow, while Jesus, Jesus knew this other man's request came from a heart which was reluctant to follow. To go home and bid farewell was for Elisha the way to show he was making a radical break with his old life and giving himself his new task. That is why in the process of bidding farewell, he actually slaughtered a team of oxen and barbecued them on a bonfire. The man with whom Jesus was dealing, however, wanted to discuss and deliberate with his family over whether he was doing the right thing. He had obviously not, been, not yet been seized by the same spirit which gripped Elisha, the spirit of willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the call. The man in Jesus that Jesus addressed did not have a mind, a made-up mind. He did not have a mind that wanted to follow Christ wholeheartedly, to leave everything behind. He was holding on to stuff, like the rich young ruler who said that he, would be, he had been following all the commandments and Jesus told him to give away all his possessions to the poor and follow him. And immediately the contents of his heart was revealed. His money was his God, not Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us that anyone who would follow him has to hate mother, father, brother, sister. Has to, and in this context, in the world that we live in today, has to not put skin color before Christ. Not have the identity in anything before Christ. Anything that comes before your being sold out to Christ will become an idol and will lead you down paths of idolatry and being misguided. There's some. So how can we say this about Elisha? 
that he had a spirit of willingness to sacrifice for the sake of the call. Well, because our text clearly shows it, the second action that Elisha took after asking to bid his parents farewell was to take the instruments of his trade and completely do away with them. By the way, let me, before I go any further, let me say this also. You know, the Pharisees, if you remember, when they were dealing with Jesus, he called them out because they were talking about the things that they were supposed to be able to honor their mother and fathers with and take those things and give them to the church or to the center, to the temple. They were given those things that they were supposed to give to the parents, to God, hypocritically. God wants us to honor our mother and our father. And so any sort of ministerial uh, engagement, activity that we get into that is not honoring to uh, the people, to our mother and father, that's not honoring to our family members, that's not honoring in that sense, is not from God, not of God. We are called to absolutely engage in that manner. But verse 21 goes on to say, and he returned from following him. We're talking about Elijah now and his response again, his second action. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they, they ate. There are some who say that Elisha owned all 12 yoke of oxen. Some say he owned the ones that were in the back. That's where he was found. That's where Elijah found him and cast his cloak upon him. Whatever the case may be, the fact is he was a man of means, a man who owned stuff that was necessary to obtain more stuff. In other words, he had invested in the things that would cause him to grow his personal wealth. He was well known and loved by his parents. Obviously, he wanted to go back and kiss them and say farewell to them. He sacrificed the meat that he had, the food that he had, his oxen. He gave them to the people around him. And so you can uh, say, say from that that he had good all-around relationships. But he gave it all away for the sake of this call. The yoke, the thing that bind the two animals together, that also was burned. Everything that was put, put aside, everything was done away with. He had no hindrances to him going forward. Can we say the same thing about our own li- in our own lives? Can we say that we have put aside those things that would hinder us from following God wholeheartedly? I remember there was a time in my life when I did not want God to have everything I had or did. I wouldn't articulate. I never said it out loud. I never articulated that fact. But it was very real in my heart. My mindset was, Lord, you can have this particular area of my life, but I'm going to hold on to this area. And for all of us, that could be different. Our consciences can work differently in us. For us, it can be in the area of the type of movies or things that we watch or, or things that we engage in and so on and so forth. Your conscience bears witness to the fact that you are not called to engage in whatever activity that is. So I'm not going to legalistically tell you, don't do this or don't do that. I am saying to you that you know what hinders you from growing in grace. You know what it is. And for me, I refuse to let those things go. And interestingly enough, it was two scripture verses that brought me to a place of resolve. 
One of them in, was in this very book, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, 21, which reads, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And I heard that in a sermon. And at the time, again, you know, I read it from the uh, King James Version because that was the version, uh, the Bible that was being utilized in the church where I heard that. And it convicted me of the very thing that I was saying of not letting go the things that were in this world that I wanted to hold on to. The things that kept me from fully growing in the grace of our Lord, moving in the direction that I should be moving in. And it said, if the Lord be God, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. I didn't answer a word, but I was convicted. And the reason I read from the first uh, King James Version, like I said, is because that's what I read back then. Now, the second uh, passage was Joshua 24, 15. Joshua reminded the people in chapter 24 of his, the fathers, the church fathers, and how they had rebelled against God time and time again, and how they had turned to other gods, how they held on to the things of the world and did not follow the God that called them to be a witness to the rest of the world. And then he ended up by saying this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your, your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is the mind that each and every one of us should have. We will serve the Lord. And the dictates of our fallen hearts will not guide us. We will not hold on to those things. But the things that God communicates to us in his word, the things that he wants us to grow in and to move in and to have our being in and to be in Christ, those are the things that we should gravitate to. Those are the things that we should hold fast to. You cannot serve God and your flesh at the same time. You have to have a made-up mind. You have to be willing to give up those things that are contrary to who you are in Christ. That's why I cannot, for the life of me, understand how our denomination finds itself wrestling with pastors who want to identify as gay. How some of our ministers can allow themselves to participate in a group whose goal of undermining the biblically submitted and informed principles and guidelines we have. I'm talking about the national partnership. Can't understand. Let me move to our third point. There's a practice of discipleship that I see here. The third and final action Elisha took was to completely leave and follow Elijah. The word assisted here is the same word used to describe Joshua's relationship to Moses. Joshua was Moses' assistant. He was not on equal footing with Elijah, but he was his apprentice. In 2 Kings, we learn that they had an extremely close relationship. 
So much so that Elijah actually calls Elijah his father. You see the same model with Jesus with his, those disciples that he called. He was with them day and night. It was through relationships that he taught them and that they learned. And so it's a model that we too should adopt. It's interesting to note that after being mentioned in this verse, in verse 21, in our passage, you don't hear about Elisha again until 2 Kings chapter 2. He basically goes off and you don't hear about him. He reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he was initially called. He didn't just go out and start trying to do this and trying to do that, but he also went off and was discipled. He also went off and was trained. And so there's a time of preparation that we ought to go through, and we ought to commit ourselves to learning from those that are older. Earlier I mentioned Ephesians 4 and the saints being equipped for ministry. Well, I want you to notice this key principle you see here and in other places in Scripture, the principle of discipleship. The Scriptures talk about the older women teaching the younger women. It speaks of not laying hands on these individuals too soon, too soon lest they get puffed up and fall into the condemnation of Satan. And on and on, we are to give ourselves up fully to God. And the evidence of that posture is our willingness. The evidence of our posture to give ourselves totally up to God is our posture is wanting to be discipled by those who are older, by those who are further ahead with respect to their maturity level in the faith. The absence of this posture is evidence of the absence of humility, of the humility that comes from above. I see and I've heard so many people, I don't need to be in the church. I don't need to go to Sunday school. I don't need to do any of those things. But that is not the weakness of Scripture when it comes to being discipled. It is an act of humility to come under the teaching of others that are older, that are wiser in the sense of being more spiritually mature in their knowledge. Concerning this model of discipleship, Riken wrote, Christ has commanded his church to go out to the nations and make disciples. Disciple making is God's pattern for growth in Christian life and ministry. To that end, those who are young in the faith learn how to follow Christ from those who are mature. Beginners in ministry learn from veterans Behind every great leader of the Christian church, there are one or more older and wiser believer, believers. One of the things that brought joy to my heart at this part past General Assembly was to watch old Palmer Robinson stand up when he was talking about the, the overture or Proposal 15 about placing a prohibition in our Book of Church order uh, concerning gay identity and so on and so forth. And he stood behind the mic with a Bible in hand and spoke to the particular issue, basically informing the assembly of what God's heart is concerning the matter. And it was just an awesome thing to see old Palmer Robinson standing up and speaking 
in a manner that was uncompromising in its orientation, in a manner that said, here is what thus says the Lord. And it was just an awesome thing to see and to know that we still, we have men and women that are standing like that, that are wholeheartedly sold out to the things of God. And the question is, are we going to be like that? Are we going to have hearts that are sold out like that? Now, typically, discipleship turns out to be a two-way street. And obviously, it is a great blessing to the disciple to learn by example how to grow in grace. But discipleship also strengthens the discipler. When you disciple other people, you will be strengthened yourself. One of the ways, like, like when, when I preach, like I'm preaching this sermon, and the amount of stuff that I study to preach this sermon is far more than I can communicate to you. And so it is with you. If you study to disciple your children, study to disciple others, older women teach the younger women, you will learn so much. God will feed you more than what you're given. And what will come into your hand will get out of your hand and you'll just be a conduit to flow the things of God through you to others. And that's a beautiful thing. Every Christian has something to teach every other Christian, which means that even the newest believer can encourage older disciples. Jesus was the perfect example of giving himself up totally to the process of revealing that which God wanted his people to know. He illuminated everything that was written in the Old Testament, illuminated the fact that it was all speaking about him. He gave it to the apostles. The apostle gave it to the church fathers. The church fathers handed it down through the age. And now we have the truth that was handed down to the saints once and for all. And we are to walk in that truth. We live in a society that is fastly abandoning every facet of biblical principle. And if we are not careful and we are not causing ourselves to be discipled, to sit on the sound teaching, to disciple others, we would lose even, even in the church I'm talking about, we would lose the things of God. We cannot afford to do that. That is not what Jesus called us to. He called us to make disciples of all nations. And in order to make disciples of all nations, we ourselves need to be discipled on a continuous basis. It never stops. It never ends. In light of the things that I've said this morning, let me ask you, have you surrendered yourself to Christ? If you have not professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, that question means nothing to you. But you need to know that you are under God's condemnation. That the wrath of God is upon you if you have not surrendered to Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you have not confessed him, I eagerly ask you to do so, to consider the merits of the things that you've heard. But if you are his, have you surrendered yourself completely?
Or are you walking the way I used to? Now, I'm not saying that I'm perfectly doing everything. Anyone who knows me, including especially my wife, knows that's not true. But I am surrendered to the Lord. Are you? Are you surrendered to the Lord? Is your heart one that wants to be discipled and you want to disciple others? Do you see the pattern that our Lord left for us and that you are engaged in it? Have you committed yourself to the process of discipling and discipling, being discipled and discipling others? Have you? As Steve Brown would say, you all think about it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the call that you placed upon our lives. We thank you for the fact that while we were yet sinners, you loved us and our Lord died for us. We know and understand that you didn't just call us into your kingdom and just made us your children, but you also called us to be ambassadors. You also called us to work in the vineyard. As we read in Luke, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. We look at the, the principle or the fact that it always seems that there's a minority that's doing all the work of the majority. But we ask that that would not be the case here at Pure Orchard, but that all of us would be first and foremost zealous of being discipled by you, zealous of being discipled by those whom you have called to equip the saints, zealous with a desire to disciple those who are under our care and zealous to disciple and to represent you well in all spheres of influence to which you place us. Give us hearts, Lord God, that would continuously walk in this manner with these things in mind. Give us mind, a mindset to surrender ourselves to you completely. Would you grab hold of our wills and make them yours? Would you move us in ways would cause people around us to recognize your hand upon us and thereby bring all glory to you. Father, we thank you again for drawing us to yourself and ask that you would now guide our feet, guide our path in such a way that we would be truly sold-out disciples who are called by your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.